Okay, um, I think one of the uh, lessons we've learned in economic policy around the world in recent years is that the analogy needs to be towards clinical medicine. You have to know the patient in detail. You have to uh, accept that you know, there's not an economics that uh, follows a one-size-fits-all path. So, you know, and a kind of off-the-shelf analysis that applies, say, the US-UK does not necessarily apply here in, in Ireland. And really, this is why I'm linking the two topics of macro adjustment and fiscal policy. Because in order to understand uh, the kind of optimal path for fiscal policy in Ireland, it's essential that we, we have a view about what's going on on, on the macro level. And really, uh, the, the macro story is we kind of go back to where we were. The economy uh, pre-crisis was not in some kind of stable uh, path running along. And the crisis not simply just a demand slump, which has led to out of falling temporarily below uh, where it should be. Uh, we know that before the crisis, the economy was very distorted. Um, and uh, part of what we have to do now is move the economy onto a sustainable uh, path for the future. And then second is uh, the issue about stabilizing the public finances, which of course is not just a one-year only issue. It's going to be a multi-year uh, process, um, and I'll come back to that. Now, there's many other crises. I think NASC is correct in uh, listing out all of those, plus now we also have the pension crisis. And some of the reasons why uh, the Irish economy uh, has uh, some features which are not shared by US, UK in particular, is first of all, you know, obviously we're a member of the Euro area. And it's my impression from listening to debate in, in recent months, um, is, you know, this is nearly, uh, you know, ignored by many people. It's a big, big constraint on what we can do and how we, we need to react. Uh, a second issue is that, um, unlike the US UK, we do not, uh, you know, we cannot print money to uh, finance debt. You know, if it turns out that the UK overborrows, uh, it's relatively easy to solve that because they issued their sovereign debt isn't sterling. In the same way, the US, you know, if they overborrow, their sovereign debt is in dollars and they control the, the, you know, they can turn on the printing press. Uh, we cannot do that. We borrow in euro by and large, and you know, we can't influence uh, the, um, uh, um, that, that arm of policy. And we have seen, I mean, it's come down thankfully, but we have seen uh, an, a, a substantial risk premium. And the issue is, you know, where would that risk premium be if the government had not undertaken the scale of adjustment they've already taken? Under the kind of do-nothing scenario, um, uh, the premium, I think, would be bigger than where it is now. And the issue is, you know, this, although the, the sovereign debt market is a lot calmer than it was in the first quarter of this year, uh, you know, around the world, there's projections for many countries to issue more and more uh, sovereign debt. And essentially, the competition for funding that debt is going to intensify. And so the idea that somehow um, the sovereign debt markets are willing to fund um, you know, un in unlimited capacity, I don't think is correct. And then finally, of course, for fiscal policy, uh, there is a, all of these contingent public liabilities um, associated with the rest of the banking system that maybe will turn out, you know, now we'll, we'll make a profit, but there's a risk, risk there. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, we kind of go back to where we were, that the pre-crisis uh, economy had this huge expansion of the construction sector, and also this big consumption boom on the back of, I think, of housing wealth 
so that you know, consumption, service, you know, providing sectors had grown very quickly. We don't expect to see a resumption of you know, massive construction. I don't think we expect to see a massive cons consumer boom given the negative balance sheets effects we've seen. And of course, in the public sector, we had all of these windfall revenues which have disappeared. So uh, we, we also have to reconstruct the uh, public finances. So where, where is the next wave of growth going to come from? I'm sympathetic to the idea we don't know where in terms of industry or sector, but um, you know, the obvious place to look is an expansion of the tradable sector. Um, and you know, people have said, well, look, exports have not fallen uh, by very much. Therefore, the export sector is fine. But you know, when you have unemployment going from you know, four and a half to 12 and maybe going to 14, this is not you know, the local you know, analysis of you know, existing firms expanding or reducing exports by a little bit. This is a, you know, a big adjustment in the economy that is needed, the so-called extensive margin. So what this means is you know, pricing more and more sectors into being uh, competitive on export uh, markets, you know, encouraging more and more firms uh, to, to, to grow and expand. Um, and you know, for those reasons, uh, what is required is, is indeed a real evaluation. So the current recession is a mix. It's partly is the elimination of this non-sustainable above-trend growth. We could not keep going as we were. But for sure, there is also a demand some element in there. There's a huge global recession. The euro is extremely strong. Um, you know, the fiscal policy has not, in, in a limited sense, has been contractionary um, because of its pro-cyclical nature. And you know, you know, behind all of this is, as was the emphasis in the first session, is you know the really big social cost to all of this is if unemployment goes too high and stays too high for too long. And you know, it's it's important that we try and solve that problem. So uh, you know, again, it's a point that's being made repeatedly that if we were not in the euro area, uh, we would have been maybe like Sweden, UK, Iceland, and devalued. And sure, uh, in that alternative universe, we would have. Um, but the, you know, the, the parallel, the exact parallel to that is, is to indeed to have um, cost reductions in the domestic economy. And given that you know, the big local cost is labor, um, that, that, that's where a lot of the action has to be. Um, now, it's, it is true that EMU is a new experiment. It's only been here for 10 years. So it's not the case we have a huge data bank of previous experiences of how to generate real devaluation inside the monetary union. That, that is um, uh, a reality. Um, and it's only limited helpfulness by looking at other unions. But what, what we do see is, it, in a sense, it has worked for Germany, but it took a long time for the German devaluation to work. We've seen by counterexample that it's possible for a country to resist. Portugal, essentially, since 01 or so, has you know, resisted real wage cuts, you know, very strong uh, unionization and so on. Well, not unionization, I should say, but labor market conditions such that uh, nominal pay reductions are not too feasible. And uh, you know, essentially unemployment has stayed high for seven or eight years and no prospect of it coming down. Now the Irish experience is, is that wages do eventually respond. You know, we, you know, there is a fairly good relationship between unemployment and wages in Ireland. But the point is, do we want that to happen you know, in a painful way, dragged out of many years, you know, that essentially high unemployment is moderating wages? Or can we do it a bit more quickly by, by having a proactive uh, response in the labor market? Now, again, uh, you know, people uh, you know, often think of you know, wages as, 
a very narrow definition. So it's, it's all types of earnings. So it includes the self-employed, you know, that the fees and incomes they earn, you know, is included here. And, you know, for many workers, uh, their all overall earnings is a combination of their, their basic rate of pay, overtime, bonuses, allowances, and so on. So, you know, that, those are essentially labels. Where the pay reduction comes from can, can just be uh, a mix of those different components. In the public sector, because it's a bit more straightforward, you, you receive your, you know, your, your pay and that's it. Uh, you know, there's probably more emphasis on actual pay reductions. Now, there's no doubt that, you know, uh, the reform agenda um, uh, can help, that expanding productivity in the non-traded sector, you know, the government sector, other than is equivalent to a reasonable evaluation by improving the productivity of the, of the local inputs in, into the uh, economy, that is like a real evaluation. Uh, so so that, that definitely is a, is a complementary strategy. And, uh, but more generally, you know, if, if we want to prosper in a monetary union, uh, Governor Huntington called it the nominal fetish in his ESRI speech two weeks ago. It is the case we have to get away from this idea that uh, the nominal quantities matter. Uh, as John McHale showed, you know, the, the, um, you know, once you discount for inflation, now again, you have to measure inflation for the group in question, uh, you know, you can have, you know, nominal, um, uh, uh, you have to, you know, have a focus on, on real incomes, not nominal. Um, whether it's, it's, you know, designing transfer schemes like pensions and welfare payments, uh, but indeed, also for tax revenues, there's a big nominal uh, element in our tax base for VAT and so on. Um, and, and also, even in terms of the design of government debt, uh, that this idea that we should be issuing um, um, nominally fixed debt is, is probably suboptimal, at least in part. So what is the role of, of fiscal policy here? Um, so let me first of all talk about ideal fiscal policy, and then I'll talk about what uh, you know, constrained world we are, we're actually in. Uh, so the ideal fiscal policy is, in part, yes, uh, when a real devaluation is required, uh, in part that requires reductions in public sector pay levels. So it's not just an issue about public finance management. It's the fact that you know, the public sector is a big part of the labor market, uh, both in terms of direct competition for workers, demonstration effects, and the tax burden of public sector pay, uh, you know, if you want to have an increase in uh, labour uh, growth in the private sector, uh, you know, reducing public sector pay levels can support that. Uh, another part of you know ideal fiscal policy is that the automatic stabilisers work, um, and for sure, uh, you know, you know, we, we should not be targeting the overall budget deficit in that sense, to the extent that its cyclical components are behind it. Um, and yes, uh, there's a role for sure. There's all sorts of schemes that could be helpful, temporary reductions in employer tax costs, uh, support for you know, short-time working schemes, uh, improving productivity through public investment. You know, all of those make a lot of sense. But of course, uh, the problem is uh, we're not in that ideal world. Uh, we're, we're constrained. Uh, we're constrained by the fact that we have this large structural deficit. And what that means is once the economy recovers, the deficit is not going to go down that quickly. Only a very small part is associated to um, the, the uh, rise in unemployment. Uh, we also have the risk premium that, again, you know, if we just let the deficit grow uh, in a kind of passive way, uh, the, the increase in the risk premium and the funding risk um, could be uh, you know, self-defeating. And I've already mentioned the banks. Uh, you might say, well, you know, let's uh, not do it now, let's do it later. 
uh, the, you know, one basic problem with that is, you know, Ireland has a history of delayed adjustment. I mean, 1987 is a big success story, but it took us eight years to get there. And there's no, and you know, the pressure is even weaker under monetary union. In the 1980s, part of what happened was very high real interest rates. You know, basically, there's a, you know, okay, we have the risk premium working in this direction now, but it's not nearly as sharp as, as before. So we could, we could roll along here, you know, without doing anything. Um, and you know, but the markets, I think, understand that. Um, and then the big problem is, you know, the structural deficit came from the fact that during the good times, we didn't run surfaces that were big enough. Um, and, you know, it's, that's very regretful, um, uh, but constrains what we can do now. And then finally, you know, people say, well, you know, it doesn't matter if the debt goes up, you know, to whatever, 80, 90, 100, 120 percent. Well, one big reason to care is the aging of the population. It's not the case, you know, that somehow uh, public spending needs are going to go down, and so the the, tap, the debt interest payments can be financed by recovery. Uh, you know, the projections are six or eight percent GDP increase to pay for our aging population, and that's actually going to be bigger once you take into account healthcare. So, you know, in fact, throughout this whole period, we should have been running a big structural surplus. Now, the pension reserve fund was in part directed towards that. Um, but the, the, the idea that we should be running up big debt uh, heading into a period when, when spending needs to go up means you know, projections are very big future increases in taxes. So you know, I think uh, the fiscal debate as I see it is maybe a little bit uh, misdirected. You know, the fiscal errors during the pre-cost period are very regrettable. Uh, the failure of bank regulation are very regrettable. Uh, that, you know, the idea is that we should run a counter-cyclical policy now. There's a lot of merit to that, but it is constrained by the fact we didn't run a counter-cyclical policy during the boom. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, that uh, a big, you know, fiscal contraction now will kill the economy. Again, there's some merit to that, but we have to also understand that um, a non-credible fiscal package, uh, you know, where we don't know where the balance is going to be on future taxes, uh, that's not going to help eliminate the savings overhang we see in the economy. Um, you know, just in terms of pay cuts, I would say, by the way, um, you know, last year was a bit harsh. We, we saw, you know, in one month or two months, you know, over a short period of time, pretty big pay reductions in the public sector. Uh, you know, that it should be possible to announce a 2010 pay cut, but then implement it in a month-by-month -month basis. So that you have the whole year to adjust, rather than facing a big, you know, lump sum reduction in, in one year. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, there's a few important points about the particular details of where we are now. Uh, you know, it, it is not the case that the uh, fiscal corrections have failed. And I think without the, you know, do nothing alternative, if they had not implemented, we would be seeing government balances, general government balance, much bigger than they are now. Uh, we have seen a big increase in, in uh, consolidated tax rates once we include all the levies. But even with all of that, what we have seen is the outcome is much worse than we thought. You know, the ESRI projection is 12.9%. The September finance projection is 12%. But either way, it's pretty big. Now, in part, one can argue that's cyclical. And to the extent it's cyclical, it's probably OK. Uh, because the GMP decline uh, now, it looks like it's only 8.7% of the uh, GMP, rather than 8%. So GDP is doing better than we thought, but GMP is doing worse than we thought this year. And to the extent a, a large chunk of the tax base is you know, off GMP, that's part of it. But a 0.7% uh, 
you know, uh, excessively optimistic forecast does not explain in a 2.2% GDP uh, undershoot in terms of tax revenue, which is where most of that comes from. So what, you know, if it's not a cycle, a lot of that undershoot has to be structural. It, you know, you cannot explain the undershoot by, by cyclical factors. And if it's structural, what that means is the problem is worse than we thought. And so, you know, the ESRI uh, projects that if the government implements the four billion package in 2020, it still leaves the general government balance at 12.8% of GDP. Whereas, you know, the April budget uh, was projected 10.75% for 2009-2010. So there's a pretty big uh, slippage there, but the way I would interpret it is a lot of that is an even worse structural deficit than we thought. And that does beg the question, if 4 billion was the right number in April 2009, is it the right number now? In fact, it, um, maybe the, the number should be bigger than that. Um, and so where are we going to do this? I mean, a lot of emphasis recently in spending reductions, I'll come to that. But it's clear a lot, you know, the tax side has to do a lot of the work. And, uh, you know, the, there's been a big increase in the marginal tax rate. Uh, but the, the obvious next step is widening the tax base. Uh, so we can all agree as economists about the inefficiency of many tax expenditures and the commission taxation has dealt with that. But the other uh, component there, uh, which has been less discussed, is the narrowing of many allowances and credits that you know, regular workers receive. That, you know, um, essentially the idea that someone on a kind of middle income uh, essentially pays a much lower fraction of his income in tax than most of the economies that is something that's inconsistent with, with uh, resolving the structural balance. Uh, and then on the spending side, um, you know, the McCarthy report, the main lesson from that is probably there's quite a lot of inefficiency in the public spending uh, system. And no matter what you're about the overall level of public spending, you know, inefficient spending doesn't sound like a good idea. And I, I would emphasize is that you know, it's possible to have fiscal, like spending cutbacks, while still running out new programs that can help to fight unemployment. There's no inconsistency in, in having you know, fiscal stabilization and having the types of programs that Danny Blanchard talked about. But of course, uh, the, the way you square that is by making bigger cuts elsewhere. You know, not all forms of public spending are equally good for attacking new unemployment. So here's a graph I showed at the ESRI conference a couple of weeks ago. And it really it shows uh, that we now have the marginal tax rate once you include the all-in level, around 54%. Now, in the UK, they're talking about a 50% tax rate kicking in at 150,000 sterling. Uh, we have a 54% tax rate kicking in at you know, 37 or 38,000 euro. You know, this does not sound like a wonderful uh, tax system. And the, the ability to raise marginal tax rates uh, while still running a smart economy you know, uh, a strategy which requires skilled workers who have options elsewhere sounds limited. So this comes back to the idea of widening the tax base, whether it's carbon tax, property tax, but also within the labour tax area, you know, cutting back on allowances and credits. And again, this is the 08 uh, table for tax and wages. Um, 09, I'm sure, is going to look different, but maybe not radically so. And what you see is that, you know, the top line is, are you single or, or married? Second line is, um, what fraction of, of average income are you? Uh, 67%, 100, 167. Um, how many kids do you have? 
And what you see is comparatively, you know, many uh, OECD economies, you know, for, for quite a number of cohorts in the Irish working population, uh, the tax payments are quite low and in some cases even negative because child benefit exceeds the tax you pay and mortgage interest relief exceeds the tax you pay. So, you know, um, the notion that this is all the extra tax can come from taxing the billionaires uh, is maybe, that's not maybe the only source of revenue we can have. Uh, so, so let me uh, just finish uh, at that point. It, is that uh, the reason why, um, uh, you know, I'd be saying that, you know, a kind of do-nothing passive fiscal policy that might suit the US and UK is not, it's not simple for us. It's partly, it's, it's the macro picture. The macro picture is we cannot return to where we were. We have to have real devaluation and to move to you know, a more sustainable uh, growth path for the future. And, and then secondly, you know, no one's arguing here for you know, balancing the books. Morning Ireland was contrasting balancing the books uh, this morning with a Keynesian policy. I mean, uh, no matter what the adjustments we're coming out with, it's going to be a double-digit deficit again in 2010. Uh, this is not balancing the books by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, unlike US-UK, we cannot print the currency in which we issue debt, um, and, and you know, the sovereign debt risk is, is, is non-trivial. Um, so it really requires you know, um, you know, so, some gesture towards fiscal stabilization, uh, rather you know, we're not suggesting anything more than that. Um, and, and also, it's really an economy-wide push to achieve real devaluation, which involves wage cuts, but also involves you know, anti-monopoly policies, other policies to reduce uh, markups, where markups are excessive, and indeed, uh, you know, efficiency gains. So public sector reform is, is part of that. It would be very desirable public sector reform, uh, but it only benefits the rest of the economy if all the gains are not captured by public sector budgets. Where, you know, in the current debate, in part, it seems that public sector reform is a way, uh, essentially, to avoid uh, pay cuts in the public sector. Uh, but for the whole economy to benefit, part of the gains from public sector reform have to be passed on to the rest of us, um, or the rest of you maybe, uh, in terms of um, you know, uh, lower taxes and higher incomes. Okay, let me leave it at that.